0: Welcome to the Building the Elite podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments.
1: Today's podcast explores common soft prep pitfalls and how to avoid them. This podcast focuses on concepts, not methods. In other words, today's topics are not concise, bite-sized facts that you can memorize. When applied, they are overarching principles that can help you to think better about the training process. To get the most out of each concept, we suggest listening to this podcast when you have some bandwidth to think about its ramifications. Or listen to each section and pause and digest the ideas before moving on. It can also be tempting to say, yeah, 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 I get it. These concepts are easy to understand, but difficult to apply, and it's the application that matters. Knowing the words to describe a concept, and knowing the concept itself through experience, are very different things. So don't stop at the, yeah, I get it, stage. Ask yourself if you apply these concepts in your own life. The words only matter to the extent that they inform the decisions you make, the actions you take and the experiences that follow. If you can't illustrate these with specific examples from your life, then you're probably not applying the concept. And even if you're not preparing for a soft pipeline, the principles discussed today apply broadly to many areas of life.
0: Interactions matter more than outputs. It's easy to get obsessed with performance metrics, like hitting a 35 minute 5 mile run or squatting 400 pounds. but these numbers are largely meaningless unless you're a professional jogger or squatter. When you hit on a metric, like your runtime or your squat number, and use it to gauge performance, you risk that metric becoming an unreliable proxy for the performance you're assessing. You could focus on the metric while missing the bigger picture and purpose. This concept is known as Goodhart's Law, which states that when a measure becomes a target, it stops being a good measure. We must be cautious about how we define the purpose of our training and how we measure its success. And consider what's essential, not just what we can measure. For example, if you're training for a soft selection, you must be capable of hitting specific physical benchmarks, but you also need to be able to move well enough to not get injured during selection, be an asset to everyone around you, Deal with extreme pain and fatigue, mentally and emotionally process challenging situations very quickly, and on and on. Like any complex outcome, you cannot reduce a special operator to a set of metrics. This is why, as coaches, we often sacrifice pure physical performance for skill acquisition. We will gladly trade a slightly faster runtime for being mentally and emotionally prepared for the rigors of selection. The two are not mutually exclusive, but they also rarely perfectly align. The work required to sharpen one skill deflects attention from the other. So, it's important that you know the trade-offs you're making and make them consciously. Ask yourself these questions. Are you crystal clear about all the things that matter? Are you sacrificing things that you can't measure to pursue measurable outputs? Consider a hypothetical situation. Let's say that you hit all the performance that you like to measure, but fail anyway. What could lead to that outcome? This is where the intangibles hide and where some of your training focus needs to be. How can you build a robust approach, considering all essential factors? Each system matters independently, but no measure of each system alone produces the outcome. It's the specific interaction of all of the systems together that matters. Did you give up movement quality to get stronger? Did you become weak to hit an amazing runtime? Did you stop pursuing challenging intellectual and emotional situations to get more sleep and recovery? Optimize the right things. Measure your progress, but focus on trends and how you're accomplishing those improvements.
1: Don't oversimplify the skills you need to pass selection. Contradictory goals are the norm, not the exception. If you're training for special operations selection, you must be strong enough to carry heavy loads, but aerobically fit enough to run, swim, and ruck long distances at non-trivial speeds. You must be mentally tough, which means you can stay focused on a singular goal until it's accomplished, but also cognitively flexible enough to adapt to changing situations. You must display leadership, but also know when to be quiet and be a contributor. You must be confident in your capability, but also humble enough to seek growth. You're headed toward failure if you reduce a complex situation to overly simplified statements or concepts. We see this play out in many different ways, such as fixating on physical metrics— and essentially reducing soft selection to a fitness competition. Obsessing over a single psychological trait, for example, fixating on developing mental toughness at the expense of interpersonal dynamics or decision-making under pressure. Focusing training on outcomes, not the qualitative aspect of how they are achieved, for example, becoming a better runner at the expense of movement quality or ignoring the job-specific skill portion of a soft selection because you excel in your current role. Many soft selections screen for job-specific skills, and they screen for only the best in their field, so general competency in your skill set isn't enough. If you want to become a special operator for a long and successful career, you must get used to managing contradictory goals and inputs. Doing so requires learning to manage ambiguity and discomfort in every sphere of life, physically, intellectually, and socially, without reaching for comfortable but incomplete mental models. The next time you distill a situation into a singular phrase or concept, pause and consider all the other factors. Ask for opposing opinions and perspectives, listen to them, and seek to understand. To avoid stagnation, you need to live with curiosity and openness. Special operators are more than fit bodies with cool beards. To be selected, you must have the mental, emotional, and social skills to do the job. This requires pursuing a diverse set of challenging experiences before you go to selection. Travel, learn new skills, pursue leadership positions, push yourself academically, and learn how to manage your mind and your emotions. Performing well in a complex world requires us to become comfortable that we'll only ever understand a small fraction of what there is to know about anything. Excellence, then, is a process, not an outcome. So put away the catchphrases and overly simplistic mental models of how the world is supposed to work. Approaching problems with curiosity, openness, and a desire to learn will enable you to develop a wide range of skills and approaches that are necessary for rapidly adapting to chaotic environments, which are the hallmark of a soft selection pipeline.
0: Identify and target limiting factors. To succeed in soft selection, you must be well-rounded and without significant limitations. It's easy to delude ourselves into thinking that we are well-rounded because limitations are rarely the failure point. A weak person doesn't fail to lift the ruck or boat in selection. They gas out on a team event or get injured. The person without a big enough aerobic base doesn't fail on the time to run. They cramp up in a crucial moment or injure themselves the body is fantastic at compensating. A weak person shifts the burden to their joints or requires their energy systems to work at a higher percentage of their threshold. The person with a limited aerobic base shifts the burden to other energy systems and muscles through movement compensations. In systems theory, this is called shifting the burden to the intervener. The system or systems that compensate for the lagging capacity are now doing multiple jobs. Eventually, something fails. Compensation is not problematic. It helps us push far beyond what any objective measure says we are capable of. But we should not be dipping far into compensation in our training. We should save those efforts for performance time. Things like selection and competition. Compensations are why people can delude themselves into thinking that they are physically ready for selection when they have glaring weaknesses. They can crush the PT test or a one-day selection prep event. Compensations run the show, and they power through. Over a two- to four-week selection, you can't hide. Weaknesses are exposed. In our coaching programs, we test quarterly or every three months to ensure our clients build balanced physiological capacities with no glaring weaknesses. This process is helpful for a few reasons. One, we know rather than assume that our clients are making progress. Two, weaknesses are identified and targeted in upcoming training blocks. And three, we can see how targeting foundational capacities, things like aerobic capacity or movement quality, impacts outputs that primarily stress other systems. You can do the same thing in your own training. Physically, this is fairly simple. Have a battery of tests that measure a variety of physiological outputs. We have examples of this on our website and include a free physiological profile generator that you can use for this purpose. Test, but don't obsess over the numbers. An obsession with PT test scores often leads to failure once you're in the course. Training that immediately enhances PT scores is a valuable part of the process. But don't mistake your ability to pass a single test for an indicator of systemic and balanced progress. Focus on the quality of your work and never sacrifice it for the sake of a short-term capacity. Everyone has weaknesses. While you should target these, you should never let any required capacity fall by the wayside to plug a gap or accentuate a strength. While soft operators have some variability in their physical and mental profiles, they all fall within a fairly narrow range depending on the unit that you're training for. Read books from former operators, find mentors, and contact the unit you want to join. Research, learn, and develop the skills necessary to be the complete package. Cognitive, intellectual, emotional, and career-specific skills are harder to measure objectively. Regardless, they still play a huge role in your success at selection. You might not excel in all areas, but you can't have a large limiting factor. For example, if you're not the best at solving complex problems, you might compensate with your social skills to support your team in other ways. Or if you're not quite as strong at communication, you can be extremely reliable and stable the cool and calm person in the toughest moments who helps others through their presence and approach. But if you can't get along with anyone or you fail your land navigation, it doesn't matter how good you are at everything else. You'll never be 100% ready for selection, but you can show up well prepared without any glaring weaknesses.
1: Quality, not intensity, sets the path of quantity. In other words, how you do something dictates your potential peak in that skill. Working hard is required, but it is not enough by itself. You can only understand your current capability by reflecting on your past and taking a long-term approach to where you want to be in the future. An isolated snapshot at a single point in time is not enough to understand much of anything. You can't tell where you're going unless you know where you've been. Let's take two people with the same set of physical outputs, so the same run times, calisthenic numbers, and max strength numbers, as an example. Person one has an extensive aerobic training background, but has been focusing on increasing their relative strength to get it up to par. Person two has a significant strength background and has been doing a lot of high intensity running to improve their run times. Each individual's path forward should differ despite the same desired outcome which is passing the same soft selection course, and similar physiological profiles. We all take slightly different paths, even moving toward the same destination. If you want to influence where you end up, then the most effective place to intervene is where you began. This helps you to see how the system behaves, not just what event it most recently produced. You can't go back in time, but you can shift your perspective starting today with a deep understanding of how your past will influence your future. Revisiting our examples, the background and training history of Person 1 and 2, not their current outputs, are what would change our approach if we were coaching them. Person 1, the one with the extensive aerobic background, could quickly rebuild that extensive aerobic base and is likely extremely efficient at running, rucking, and swimming. Assuming they built their relative strengths without sacrificing their movement quality, they might be capable of being physically prepared for selection in a pretty short period. Person two has peaked in their conditioning by doing a lot of high-intensity or exploit-type workouts. Even if they move well, they must rebuild and expand their aerobic base, which would take at least six months. Small things early in the process, through various feedback loops, can greatly influence where you end up years later. The further down your path, the harder it is to change course, and the more time you'll have to spend doing so. This is known as path dependency, or lock-in. If you're two months out from selection, it's too late to build an aerobic base or significantly change your running technique. This is why we always tell individuals to spend years preparing for soft selection, not months. With a long-term perspective, you can focus on the quality of your efforts in all areas of your life without needing such a strong emphasis on outputs like your runtime. If the quality of your efforts is high, and you know how to work hard when appropriate, the outcome will take care of itself. If you spend years following an intelligent training plan and developing your mental, emotional, and social skills without sacrificing the quality of an effort for a short-term, transient goal, then you open the door to high peaks and long-term performance.
0: Don't mistake a trajectory for a phase. Sometimes it's easy to write off specific periods in life as just a passing phase or momentary deviation from an otherwise rigorous standard. I'm extra busy this week, so takeout for dinner three days in a row isn't a big deal. I'll get back to eating healthy. I normally train consistently, so it's okay that I've been to the gym once in the past two weeks. These statements could be factual or the comforting white lies that we tell ourselves as we drift further from being the person that we want to be. We can be lulled into complacency when things are good enough. But what if good enough is just the start of an insidious slide into failure? This is a systems trap called drift into failure. A gradual decrease in quality, subtle enough to erase the memory of how good things used to be. A creeping lullaby of declining standards. It's just for now. I'll get back to it on Monday. I'll start once things settle down at work. Once established, these standards slowly align with the lowest level of performance that doesn't immediately break something. This drift goes unnoticed until it culminates in a disaster. Some researchers study how this leads to plane crashes and space shuttle explosions. It can also result in the realization that you're nowhere near living the life that you wanted and that clawing your way back in the right direction will be a long, hard road. But do these accidents truly come out of nowhere? Or are they the result of having a long line of overlooked slips, each one rationalized away until their collective weight leads to an inevitable catastrophe? Only after failure occurs do we see the deficiencies that led to it, and we often fail to examine why we didn't recognize them while they were happening. So, as you navigate your preparation, periodically take a moment to step back and assess. Are you on a trajectory or simply going through a phase? Are you maintaining your standards or sliding into a drift into lower performance? Remember, it's not always the ants, the individual events, that matter. It's how the colony, the whole system, behaves. Don't let the drift into failure become your trajectory.
1: Look for the root cause. Don't treat symptoms. An effective training process aims to make you more robust or resilient, not more specialized and fragile. In other words, your purpose in training is to increase the range of situations you can navigate so that you do what's asked of you in selection without quitting, getting hurt, or becoming a liability. The rules you might make to try and prevent something bad from happening during your training could easily produce unforeseen problems later on, just as many practices meant to keep athletes from becoming injured in training create their own limitations. Think of ankle taping. Many athletes, starting as early as high school or even middle school, tape their ankles to near rigidity to help protect them from strains. In our book, we borrow a metaphor from Donella Meadows, author of the book Thinking in Systems. Meadows uses the metaphor of resilience as a plateau with walls on the edges. So a system, that's us, operates on the surface of that plateau. The more resilient the system, the bigger the plateau. A bigger plateau means more options and more space to wander— It means big, soft walls will easily bounce the system back if it gets near a dangerous edge. Less resilient systems work on smaller plateaus with lower and less forgiving protective walls. So instead of bouncing you safely back, these low walls are harder to see and act more like trip hazards over a precipice. Eventually, the system is, as Meadows put it, operating on a knife edge, likely to fall off in one direction or another whenever it makes a move. Most of us treat our resilience capacity like little kids treat their playgrounds. We get so immersed in what we're doing that we ignore the conditions under which we're doing it. As Meadows says, we're paying more attention to our play than to our playing space. Within this metaphor, things like constant proactive ankle taping build a bigger wall on a small plateau trying to make it safe to play within a small range without expanding the playing space. This practice makes ankles increasingly dependent on artificial stability for safety. They become more fragile over time, unable to handle normal variability and demands. The safety intervention becomes a driver of even greater vulnerability. Instead of restoring the requisite variety to handle the demands of the environment, meaning training and competition, The system is pushed the other way and given fewer and fewer available options. Eventually, you've got somebody who's been obsessively taping their ankles into immobility and can't stop injuring them anyway. So, we must pay attention to what we're doing and the range of conditions under which we can do it. Instead of making rules around every symptom that might come up, look at the common themes that are built into a system. Consider what would enable a system to handle a disturbance, like an ugly deadlift or a bad step under a heavy ruck. Rather than specific linear factors, what are the pieces that support resilience and reliability? Think about what it would take for your ankles to handle any awkward, heavily loaded rucking over rough ground. There's much more to that than be careful and don't take a bad step. If your training has given you ankles that must be carefully protected at all times lest you go down with a sprained ligament in the middle of a ruck march, can we really say that one bad step is the problem? Consider another example, failing a timed swim because you're fatigued from a night of missed sleep. You could try to make a rule for yourself to never miss a night of sleep, but if you're anywhere in special operations, that's an unrealistic bit of whimsical thinking. You essentially live in a world of chaos, and you'll never be able to control that. What about that crash in blood sugar caused by a missed meal that killed your run performance? High aerobic workloads with long spaces between meals are a trademark of soft selection. Your body is evolutionarily capable of performing prolonged submax aerobic work under conditions of low carbohydrate intake, but you're not likely to handle that challenge easily if the first time you're testing that ability... Is in the middle of your selection pipeline. Hoping never to face that challenge, or that it will somehow work itself out if you do, isn't a strong strategy. You can't control the environmental demands in selection or in real-life operations. What you can control, however, is how much of an impact a single night of missed sleep or a missed meal or two has on your body countless trainable factors influence your day-to-day and moment-to-moment recovery, autonomic variability, metabolic flexibility, and resilience. Those factors are the tools you need to build the skills and capacities necessary to take events like a night of missed sleep or a particularly brutal day in selection off the big deal chart and back into manageable territory.
0: That's all we have for you today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, including what could be improved, what topics you'd like to hear about, and what you enjoyed. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about it or leave us a review on whatever podcast host you're using. Both of these go a long way toward helping us continue to provide quality content free of charge.